from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Jerry Peterson. I'm an elder currently serving on the session here at First Presbyterian. Please join me in our call to worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Let us worship our God. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Mark 11, 1 through 11, which can be found on page 44 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say, The Lord needs it and will send it back immediately. They went away and found a colt tied to a door outside the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed him to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed shout, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our, our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapters 14, verses 32 to 42. It can be found on page 49 of the New Testament in our Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. As you'll hear, this passage tells us about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his betrayal and arrest, a stark contrast from what we just heard, and a low moment in this passion narrative as his own friends, his inner circle cannot stay awake to keep vigil with him the night before his betrayal and arrest. So listen for how God may be speaking to you through God's holy word this morning. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. 
And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest enough? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in 1681, uh, King Charles II deeded a sizable parcel of land uh, to Englishman William Penn as a way to settle a debt that the king had with Penn's father. Uh, The younger Penn had a passion for democracy, a passion for religious freedom. Those two variables were the inspiration for him to create the province of Pennsylvania and to plan and develop its principal city, my birth city, Philadelphia. Over 200 years later, 1892 to be exact, a massive cast iron statue was made of William Penn, and eventually it was hoisted atop of City Hall, and there was no building taller than William Penn's top hat. In fact, even though it was never formalized into law, there did exist a gentleman's agreement among the leading developers and the artisans of the city that no building would ever eclipse William Penn. In the early 1980s, with mounting pressure from the business community to remain competitive, with cities like New York and Boston and Baltimore, uh, twin skyscrapers planned to surpass William Penn's statue were proposed, approved, and eventually built. Well, in 1983, the year before the skyscrapers were even suggested, the Philadelphia 76ers won the NBA championship. I was eight years old, and according to my parents, way too young to attend the downtown parade celebrating the team's victory. What does William Penn's statue have to do with the NBA championship? 
Well, once those buildings went up, once those buildings were constructed, once they eclipsed William Penn's top hat, not one of the four professional sports teams in Philadelphia won a championship. People started calling it the curse of Billy Penn. Staunch believers in the hex said that William Penn did not take too kindly to have in having a statue overshadowed, and so he jinxed these professional sports teams. Now, the championship drought was very real and lasted from the time I was eight years old until I was 33, 25 years. That's 100 professional sports seasons with no championship, no parades. When the tallest building in the city, the Comcast Center, was completed in 2007, some brilliant iron workers decided to purchase one of those mini statuettes of William Penn from one of the visitor bureau shops near City Hall, and they put it at the very top of the Comcast Center so that Billy Penn could take his rightful place overlooking the city. And sure enough, in 2008, the Philadelphia Phillies won the World Series, thus breaking the curse. On Halloween day of that year, a parade at long last caravan throughout the streets of the city. I had to be there. And I was. In fact, it was the first and only championship parade that I have ever attended. Now, some would say that all of those losing seasons and all of the times your team falls short of the ultimate goal, being crowned champions of this league or that league, some folks will say that once the parade comes, all of that sadness and all of those losses, they just kind of float away. Maybe that's true for some people. But for me, I want to parade every year. I mean, sincerely, I want the party. I want, I want the victory. I want to be on the winning side. I don't want drought. I don't want long suffering. I don't want to just get close. I want the parade. Georgia Tech football fans, you know what I'm talking about? You haven't won a national championship since 1990 and all the Georgia Bulldog fans are laughing. It's worse for you. You haven't won since 1980. The Braves haven't won since 1995. The Hawks won in 1958, but they were in St. Louis, so does that really count? And the Falcons have never won. And I suspect that if you're a fan, you're not content with that. You're not content with that. You want a parade every year. You want the party. Well, this Sunday, March 20th, begins what we in the Christian church call Holy Week. And Holy Week is bookended by two great parades. It's bookended by two great parties, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Today, on Palm Sunday, we recount Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the back, as Mark tells us, on the back of a colt. Jesus approaches the holy city, this, this city where prophets go to die, but death is not in the air or on the lips of the people who gathered for that parade on that particular day. 
There were no death chants, only lines borrowed from Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a declarative word used in the offering of praise to God for not only God's historic salvation, but God's active salvation with the people right then and there. Jesus was cheered on as the blessed one, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one who, who embodies God's salvation. On that day, he was the people's champion. On that day, he was victor, and so they had a parade. Because that's what you do when you win, or when you're winning, you have a parade. It was a celebration of victory, of God's victory, and the people wanted to be a part of it. We'll have another parade next week. We'll worship here 8, 9, and 11 o'clock next Sunday. We'll have a parade. It'll be a party, and Holy Week has these two parades, these, these two parties for us to experience. But what about the six days in between? What about the six days that make up Holy Week? New Testament scholar Ched Myers describes the hard reality that takes place between these two Sundays. He says this about Holy Week in saying that it's a time when the discipleship narrative is on the verge of collapse. It's on the verge of collapse. The narrative arc of discipleship, that process of following Jesus in and for the world and becoming more like him as we do it is about to fail. The discipleship narrative is about to fail as Jesus' followers participate in acts of anti-discipleship. They fall asleep. They betray they deny and almost unilaterally abandon him. The six days in between are marked by loss and crisis and doubt and despair and spiritual and physical pain. In fact, the older, more traditional name for these six days, instead of Holy Week, it used to be called Passion Week. Passion Week. The word passion comes from the Latin word passio. It means suffering. It's suffering week. This is the week that we remember the suffering that Jesus experienced in his quest to be fully present and fully obedient to God's will in his life. Now, friends, if given the choice between parade and passion, if given the choice, most of us are going to take the party. Most of us are going to take the parade. We want parades, not passion. We want celebrations, not suffering. This is part of the reason why churches will be packed today, going from preaching to meddling here. That's why they'll be packed today and even more packed next week and why attendance will pale in comparison on days like Ash Wednesday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday because really, deep down inside, we just want a party. 
We just want the parade. We don't want the passion. We don't want to deal with the six days in between. We'll show up today and we'll see you next week when the next party rolls around. I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine here in Atlanta last week and he mentioned those commercials. You know what I'm talking about? Those commercials that advertise drugs for very specific medical conditions. These commercials try to convince us that if we just take this drug, life will change. Everything will be better. Everything will, will be healed and fixed. But then toward the end of the ad, the well-spoken narrator begins to list the common side effects of the drugs, <laughs> right? Insomnia, hypersomnia, dizziness, weakness, drowsiness, sedation, fatigue, upset stomach, nausea, headache, tension, nervousness, agitation, restlessness, decreased appetite, etc., etc. My friend and I talked about how preachers and new member classes and churches in general would do well to list the common side effects of a life that follows Jesus in the world. We would do well by doing that. The gospel will change your life. It will change your life, but there's some side effects that come with it. Sacrificial love, putting others first, dying to yourself, giving up what the world says is valuable so you can hold on to that which God says is valuable. Taking up a cross and following him, a willingness to suffer with those and for those that suffer injustice and allowing your heart to break by the very things that break the heart of God. The Christian life, friends, is equally about parades and passion. It's about parades and passion. So we come to the end of our Wrestling with God sermon series. I chose the Garden of Gethsemane text to illustrate this point. I think in many ways God wrestles with us to keep us attentive, that God wrestles with us to keep us awake to the fact that passion is very much a part of what it means to be a Christian. The disciples, they fell asleep on Jesus in the garden. The word to describe the sleep these men took in is the Greek term kathiodo. And it literally means to fall asleep. It, it literally means to doze off. It means that they, they literally fell asleep on Jesus. But from a metaphorical perspective, it is a word that can also mean being indifferent to God's work in the world. It can mean being indifferent to salvation or apathetic to what God is trying to accomplish. Friends, what an interesting juxtaposition to what took place so many years ago on that Palm Sunday. Right, because, because just days earlier from this Garden of Gethsemane story, just days earlier, the people were very, very, very much interested in God's salvation, weren't they? They were concerned about it. In fact, they shouted Hosanna, which means save. Oh, they were very interested. And just a few days later, at least some of the disciples and many more of them to follow are now indifferent to it. They fall asleep. Jesus pleads with them. He, he, he wrestles with them. 
He calls them to stay awake because they need to see with their own eyes. They need to see it for themselves. God's plan of salvation and how it will be realized, not just in parades, but in passion. They need to see it with their own eyes. They have to stay awake because part of discipleship means being attentive to God's plan of salvation by suffering with ones that God is seeking to save. God was seeking to save Jesus, and in fact, he did, through the power of resurrection. And we must stay awake and be attentive to him in his suffering. But friends, God is also seeking to save the world. And he'll do it through resurrection. And so we must stay awake and suffer for and suffer with those whom God is seeking to save, which the gospel says is the whole world. Martin Luther King Jr. was quite fond of using Washington Irving's short story, Rip Van Winkle, to make a similar point. Uh, Motivated by laziness, and you know this story, Van Winkle climbs a mountain and he falls asleep for, for 20 years. King, in a sermon, once said, the one thing that we usually remember about this story is that, is that Rip Van Winkle sleeps for two decades. We remember that part of the story, but we forget uh, that part about when he comes down and, and how as he, he descends the mountain after his 20 years slumber, that he sees a sign that he recognizes when he first went up. And the sign had a picture of King George III. The sign is still there as he comes down, but now the image has changed. Now it's a man he doesn't recognize. It's the first president of the United States, George Washington. And he's totally baffled as to who this man is and what has happened in the world. And King says this, that this part of the story reveals to us the most striking thing about Rip Van Winkle. It's not merely that he slept 20 years, but that he slept through a revolution. That he slept through a revolution while he was peacefully snoring away. A revolution was taking place that changed the world. He was asleep and he slept through a revolution. Friends, I close with this. We have been called to stay awake to stay awake for a God lived for, a God died for, a God raised for revolution. This revolution is in part about parades. There's some great parties in this revolution. Victory that God has already accomplished in Christ Jesus for you and for me and for the whole world. But it is also a revolution of passion. It's a revolution that calls us to stay awake, to not remain indifferent to God's activity in the world, to stay awake and not be apathetic toward those who suffer even now. It's a willingness to stay awake and be aware of what these six days between the parades actually means. We stay awake these six days so we might know the cost of discipleship and so that we might know what it actually means to be one. And so may we be disciples that are ready to serve, that are ready to sacrifice, ready to be obedient and faithful even when it is exceedingly difficult, and ready to suffer 
with those who suffer. Friends, may we be people of the parade and of the passion. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so in our time and all of God's people say, Amen. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ leads us on in parades and in passion. May we discover what it means to be a disciple that connects to the parade but also connects to the suffering of those that God is seeking to save. May we be a part of God's plan to put this world right. And for that journey, may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life.